the Arthropod. The Arthropod is the home for the wonderful, weird, wacky world of insects. Hosted by Jonathan Larson, Jody Green, and Michael Scavarla. Welcome back, everybody, to Arthropod, your favorite entomology-themed podcast. I am one of your hosts today, Michael Scavarla of Penn State University. I'm one of your other hosts, Jonathan Larson of the University of Kentucky. I'm your last host for today. I'm Jody Green from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And today, I'm going to be running the show uh, because we're talking a bit about pesticides. And I know basically nothing about them. Uh, So I'm going to be asking John and Jody the questions. uh, And being the stand-in for all of you all in the audience who may (laughs) not know these questions. The inquisitive entomologist who wishes exactly. to know more. Yeah. Exactly. So I think one of the things I want to start with is just defining some terms. Uh, okay. So when we're talking to clients about pesticides, things that they need to, to know, um, we'll often use terms like active ingredient and trade name uh, and even sometimes mode of action. So can you tell me like what is the difference between an active ingredient and a trade name and how that relates to pesticides. Do you want to tackle this one or? Sure. So I guess because we deal with the public and they always want to know what they can spray or what they can use. I guess for me, we can say an active ingredient because that is the toxic part of the compound. So that's actually what's doing the killing or the repelling or it's it's active. It's the active part. That's why it's called the active ingredient. When That's it comes to the it right, when it comes to the trade name, it's more of what the manufacturer has given that name to. So, I guess an example. I always use food examples because that's it. It helps people understand. So, like a brownie, the active ingredient is usually chocolate, right? A chocolate brownie, <laughs> but the trade name may be like the company, like. Duncan Hines, or right. I don't know any others because I don't bake. Betty Crocker. Betty Crocker. You know, so when you're like, oh, that's a brownie. So if you're on the level that I guess we are, we can say what the active ingredient is because they work in different ways and they'll function in different ways. But that trade name can be who labels that. And that's going to be the manufacturer. And that's so, what people would buy at the store. Like they're they're familiar with these brand names all those trade names, they're proprietary. And if people ever wonder why entomologists or extension people talk about active ingredients, it's because things change. Uh, Seven is a great example, right, Jody? Right. Most people think seven, they relate that seven dust to carbaryl. And today that seven dust is no longer carbaryl. The active ingredient is, is it bifenthrin or cyclomethrin? Okay. No, it's, it was fast. I just was actually, one of the reasons I was interested in doing this today is I was just trying to buy some stuff for squash vine borer control in my garden. And seven now has three different things that are kind of like in the Lowe's or Home Depot pesticide section. And they all have three different pyrethroids in them. The dust is bifenthrin. And then there was a liquid and a ready to use. These are different formulations, which we can talk about later. But 
they had different pyrethroids, bifenthrin, cypermethrin, and cyhalothrin. Uh, and I, I was like, if you just were like, I have used seven for 40 years, you wouldn't know that you were like completely changing what you've been using if if you didn't go through and read and see what that active ingredient is. So these proprietary things, they they rely on brand recognition and sometimes they'll change the active ingredient. They usually make a big deal about it, but not everybody is you know, on the, the pesticide newswire looking for that information. Right. I guess it's like, if you think about Tylenol, like we know Tylenol as acetaminophen. So the acetaminophen would be that active ingredient. And whereas what's a ibuprofen? Ibuprofen, yeah. That's another active ingredient, but there's other trade names of ibuprofen. Is it like I don't know my drugs either. Sorry. I, don't know. <laughs> I, always buy the, I always buy the generic. So it's just called the benefit and ibuprofen. Yeah. But right. it's, but it's important because when you're dosing like yourself or children, some are processed in different parts of the body and they have to be every four hours and needs, you know, so it's important to, no matter what you do, whether it's drugs or pesticide food, read the label. Yes. You have to read the label. Uh, the label is associated with that trade name and that active ingredient to an extent. Uh, if you look at the label, you'll notice that when you buy something, it is not going to be 100%. My example will be imidacloprid for a lot of what we talked about today. So if you buy a jug of Merit 2F, it will not be 100% imidacloprid. There will be another percentage listed that are the inactive ingredients. Those can be like adjuvants and stickers and spreaders, all kinds of stuff that help the pesticide, the insecticide, I should say to work. Uh, and then the trade names. The other thing that gets kind of tricky is like, if you're talking about a metacloprid, depending on what you're trying to do, uh, the trade names could be wildly different. So we have people that come to us sometimes and they're like, well, I have this product and it's for corn. And you told me to spray the same active ingredient, but I want to treat grass and they want to know if they can just use it. And usually no, uh, the label won't allow for that. And the trade names will be different for different like ag sectors or different uses. So if you if we stick with imidacloprid, you could buy it as Merit. You could buy it as Imidapro. It is Adonis, uh, Advantis, and then also Bayer Advanced Complete Insect Killer, I think is still uh, imidacloprid. So all of those have wildly different uses. Advantis is for dogs. Uh, you couldn't just go buy Imidapro and spray your dog with it. It's not formulated for that whereas Advantis is. So we're trying to like lay the foundation here for helping people to understand what it is they're, they're looking for and buying, I guess, if they're going to spray. So you mentioned a couple things, uh, and I think we're going to get to them all, uh, but what is an adjuvant? So you mentioned that there are other things in the uh, formulation that can help it do different things. You mentioned stickers, maybe. I don't know any of these words. <laughs> what are they and what do they what do they do? They just make it more effective in the area that you're applying them. So if you want to spray it to a plant, you're going to want it to stick better. And so you'll have to have some kind of additive. So when it comes to the active ingredient on the label, it will have like the active ingredient and then it may have like inert ingredients, which may be those things. So. Yeah. They, they're there to help the product work better, basically. Uh, and the ratio that they're in there with is, is specific. 
Um, if you look around like uh, INPIC, uh, National Pesticide Information Center, uh, they will talk about adjuvants also as surfactants. Um, a lot of adjuvants are surfactants. Uh, so they're surface acting agents or wetter spreaders. Basically, uh, they make the droplets that we spray out sort of flatten and go along so they can penetrate the leaf. Uh, other adjuvants, they're there to help the product stick to the plant. So you get more rain fastness. So if it rains, your product doesn't just wash off into the grass. Uh, it may penetrate uh, the waxy layer of a leaf or the insect. Uh, it may actually help with application. You may have an adjuvant that's in there that makes sure the product doesn't foam when you add water. So it suppresses that foaming action so you can actually measure and spray what you want to do. Uh, there's lots of different adjuvants out there. They're just additives that help the product to work. And sometimes there's things called synergists, just which also just make that active ingredient better. And so that's that proprietor proprietary thing. It's like the whole back to brownies. Sometimes you have a special ingredient. You don't have to really declare that. <laughs> maybe it's peanuts. Maybe it's this. Like, but and that's specific to that brand. But they do have to declare like the percentage of that active ingredient and the percentage of inert ingredients, which may include those other things that help enhance the activity and the healing power. I like this brownie example. I'm trying to figure out how to work in a cosmic brownie joke. <laughs> so another thing that you mentioned were pyrethroids and different classes of active ingredients. I guess, can you give some examples of what those classes might be and how they're different and why they're different and why that's important when we're talking about pesticides. Yeah, uh, I think I can do that. Uh, when we talk about chemical classes, it's basically uh, a family. Like, Mike, you think of things in terms of taxonomy. This would probably be kind of at the family level, uh, taxonomically speaking, uh, where you have a group of related things that are similar in some way. In the case of insecticides, the active ingredient will be part of this chemical class. So if I stick with imidacloprid, which I've used as my example, compound, it is a part of the neonicotinoid chemical class. And classes are grouped together mainly by their mode of action, which we'll probably talk about right after this, which is the way that they kill the insect. So they will be grouped together by something uh, that we call the IRAC number, which is the Insecticide Resistance Action Committee. I think, uh, is that what that stands for, Jody? Yeah, action committee. They work to, to make these classes and they produce these numbers so that people can easily know when they're dealing with chemicals that are a part of the same class. And the reason that's important is because if you continually use the same class of insecticide against the same types of pests, you will eventually breed for resistance, which we might get into more in the future here. Uh, in the episode, but it means that you've put so much pressure on them. They've evolved the ability to not be killed by the product anymore. So you got to switch it up between the classes. So to stick with your imidacloprid example, if I spray my fields with imidacloprid, uh, which is a neonicotinoid and start seeing resistance and I try switching to another neonicotinoid, they're also going to be resistant to that new chemical because it's closely related what a right. chemical structure, mode of action, that kind of stuff to exactly. the original imidacloprid. Right. They'll be either almost identical in chemical structure, uh, but most importantly, 
they will have the same mode of action. They will work on the same part of the insect's nervous system. And if that is where the resistance has been evolved is to the, where it's supposed to kill the insect in the nervous system, then yeah, if it's in the same group, in the same class, you won't get any lethal action. Anymore. How many chemical classes are there? And is this something that like we found them all? Or are we still like discovering new insecticide classes? Like I will need more information about that. I will say that if you go by the IRAC numbers, they're up to 36 uh, in terms of like numbers that you'll see, but not all of the numbers in between one and 36 are represented. For example, for some reason, there's not a, a group 35. Uh, maybe there once was and it's gone now, but that's kind of where we're at right now. Maybe it's been uh, pushed into another group, but I would say we're still finding new ones. There's there's always new discoveries at the company level. They're finding all of these compounds that they give little numbered codes to, and then they try to figure out if it works against anything, and then they figure out how it kills, and you may end up with a new IRAC number, uh, or they may be lumped in with one of the older ones. So I don't think we found them all yet. I think we'll be constantly still doing that going forward. Yeah, I mean, there's full companies and research scientists looking for new compounds they're finding insects that or weeds i mean i guess when we talk about pesticides we're talking mostly about insecticides since we're usually targeting insects as pests whereas you could have herbicides and fungicides and rodenticides and all sorts of things so those words i guess describe what that pesticide is meant to kill so when it comes to ours, when it's like insecticide, that's that IRAC chart and it's available online at the IRAC website and it just goes on forever, it seems, because there are always new products and chemicals being invented to work on different, I guess, targeted parts of the insect's physiology, I guess. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Uh, at- go ahead. No, you go. I just was going to make a joke about my favorite classes that they have on the IRAC website are the unknown ones. So I mentioned the numbers, like it goes up to number 36. But then after 36, you have UN, UNB, UNE, which are like uh, unknown or uncertain mode of action for bacterial agents, Uh, unknown or uncertain modes of action for various compounds. Uh, I just think that's interesting. That's like, it does stuff. It kills things. But we don't really know how. So it gets this number or gets this letter. Yeah, like things we use, things that are out there being used all the time. And so when we're like, ah, we're not really sure. Yeah, Neem Neem is right at the top of the list. That's interesting to me because presumably it would be reasonably easy to test for cross resistance. Like if you have a known strain of flies that is resistant to neonics, you could test these unknown classes against resistant strains and be like, ah, yeah, it doesn't kill these neonic resistant flies. It must be some kind of neonic. So like, is there a good chance then that these unknown things are some new chemical class and we just like, we really just don't know how they work yet? I would is, say that, so. is that too much speculation? No, I mean, it is speculation, but we're, we can speculate. Uh, I would guess that some of them would fall out that way. Yeah, like they would turn out to be completely new, unknown to science. And I think you're right that some of them otherwise we could find out. 
oh, it must be tangentially related to sodium channel modulators or something like that because we took these resistant py- to pyrethroid tests and we exposed them to this product and they're resistant to it or semi-resistant to it. So there's some sort of, of, of cross-linkage there. My guess is a lot of that work has been done, but it's negative dissolve, negative data. So it probably isn't published, right? Like if we talk about the biases of, of academia, so uh, that's one possibility, but I am highly speculating right now. So you mentioned what sodium gated channels or something like that. And you mentioned right. neurons before. Uh, so this is kind of getting at these mode of actions um, to give you a leading question, like how do these things, how do many of these pesticides work? And sure. why are you talking about like sodium channels and neurons and, and things? Yeah. Uh, so most of our products that we use against insects, most of our insecticides, they're nervous system agonists. So they attack the central nervous system of our insect pests. This is like a historical artifact from the, the ways that we developed insecticides that just by and large, all of the, a lot of them seem to fall into that sort of classification. They attack the nervous system. And so when we talk about the insect's nervous system, this is for insect physiologists that might be listening. This is a gross oversimplification, but I hope it, it translates well to the audio format. So to like make it the barest of bones explanations, when an insect creates an impulse, like it's trying to move its leg, there's an excitatory neuron that begins the process of sending a signal from the ganglia to the leg, right? So they can do what they want to do. And the it'll start out as electrical and then turn into chemical signals along the way, but it has to go through the excitatory neuron first. When it does that, they will open these different gates in the neuron, and these gates are modulated. They're controlled by sodium and potassium, typically. And so the ratio of sodium to potassium will open or close these gates and allow the signal to continue down the path where it will reach a synapse. A synapse is a gap between the excitatory neuron and the motor neuron. In order to traverse the gap, they are, they're going to hitch a ride with a, a neuroreceptor, typically acetylcholine, so they can go across the synapse and land in a landing zone on the other side where they will activate the motor neuron, and then the motor neuron will translate the signal again, and then they have to go across another gap uh, where they'll be traveling with GABA, if I remember correctly, before they hit the muscle, and then the thing happens that you want to have happen. There are multiple parts to this pathway that we can sort of poke holes in or or disrupt so that we can disrupt their ability to move, to breathe, or just basically to think. And the way that that happens is called our mode of action. So this is the way that we actually kill the insect. If you ever hear somebody talk about insecticides, they go through and talk about various different kinds and then kind of what the results are of different products. Most of them end in the sentence uh, paralysis and death, where the neuron becomes overexcited. There's overstimulation or understimulation in some cases, and it leads to tremors, paralysis, and death for the insect. So we can go in and we can stop those sodium and potassium gates from opening or closing, or we can force them open and all of the the ions flow out and then it doesn't work anymore. You can mimic acetylcholine in the synapse and fill in all of the receptors 
so that then the real acetylcholine can't get across anymore. Uh, and the, the stuff that you've put in can't be broken down. So it basically gums up the works and they can't function anymore. You can attack GABA. There's lots of opportunities in this system for insecticides to work. And that mode of action dictates what class they're going to be put in. Uh, so the pyrethroids, for example, they're working in that sodium channel area. So there's sodium channel, whatever they're called on the IRAX. I, I want to use the exact right verbiage. They are sodium channel modulators. Uh, they end up keeping the sodium channels open, which in the, the, this is what I was talking about before, causes hyperexcitation and in some cases nerve block. Uh, the nerve cha sodium channels are involved in the propagation of action potentials along nerve axons. So doing that leads to the death of the insect. The only thing I think I remember from my early days as an entomologist is acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. So <laughs> I assume that that has something to do with acetylcholine, and that is maybe a mode of action. Is that correct? What, say that again. Uh, acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. Yes, that is uh, that is one that you stop acetylcholinesterase from being able to break down acetylcholine, or you block the acetylcholine receptors and you can't be broken down by acetylcholinesterase. That's what happens with nicotine and nicotinoid type products. Uh, and so you can't get broken down. You fill in all of those receptors and then the insect's nervous system can't work anymore. So are there any insecticides then that aren't attacking the nervous system in any of these like many different kinds of ways? Are there things sure. that work in other, other ways? Yeah, the one that I am most familiar with are is a relatively new class of insecticides. It's IRAC number 28. They're called the ryanidine receptor modulators, um, also known just as the diamides. And with these, they work in the muscle instead of working in the nervous system directly. They attack the, the muscle itself, and they will get into what are called ryanidine receptors, and it leads to contraction and paralysis. And they uh, they force these ranidine receptors open, basically, and all of the calcium that's stored up uh, just flows out, like if you leave the gate open at a cow farm. And so all of that leaves, and you lose that action potential, and the the muscles just sort of spasm to death. It's like a deadly body-wide Charlie horse, is what I was told uh, once upon a time. So it's a little different than the nervous system, but no less uh, gruesome for the insect, perhaps. Uh, and then what about something like BT? BT is a good one too. Jody, I've been talking for a while. Do you want to jump in on BT or is that one that you uh, don't care much for? Well, it depends. We we do recommend BT a lot for caterpillars and mosquitoes, but um, Bacillus thuringiensis is a bacteria. So people like it because it's naturally occurring. So a uh, bio-rational. Did you want to talk about what a biorational is? Sure. Well, uh, well let's. Uh, how does BT work first, and then let's talk about biorational versus it disrupts the mid gut. So that has to do with a different part of the body, and not so much like the nervous system, but the guts of the insect. Then, like, what does it do in there? Like, is it? How does it? How does it disrupt it? I guess. Like, is it punching holes in the gut, or is it? I don't know, making them constipated or something. <laughs> I don't know. Causes death. 
Uh, if you look at the IRAC website, which I'm cheating a little bit in doing, uh, they are protein toxins that bind to receptors on the mid-gut membrane. They induce pore formation, which I think is a fancy way of saying they make a bunch of holes in the insect's stomach. Uh, and this leads to blood poisoning. Uh, it gives them septicemia, basically, where their stomach contents leak out into the, the rest of the body cavity. That so that's sounds... one of the things, yeah, that they have to eat too. So like for uh, like BT, BTK, it's like for the caterpillars. So it's only immature lepidopterans. And so they have to eat it. So it's not like there's not going to be damage to the plant. They have to apply it to the plant fully. Smaller caterpillars are going to be more affected because the smaller the, you know, the smaller the organism, the less you have to eat. Dose equals the poison. So that's why we target the smaller caterpillars when it comes to immature mosquitoes. Like if anyone's heard of those mosquito dunks, which is the trade or brand name, um, that is uh, BTI that only targets immature dipterans, so immature flies, um, like midges and mosquito larvae, and they have to eat that. So that gets put in the water, or you put in the dunks or the bits in the water, and the larvae eat that, and then that would disrupt that midgut, and then they would die. And then I think there's other ones for uh, Japanese beetles and BTG. Colorado potato beetle, yeah. So, so that brings up, we'll get to bioirrational, I think, in a second. Um, but before we got, before we started recording, um, Jody, you mentioned something like you're kind of in your line of work when you're talking to clients about pesticides to use, you're less interested or less worried about things like mode of action and what part of the neuron or whatever they're attacking and more concerned about how the pesticides are applied, how the insects are coming in contact with them, because that's often what, what clients will mess up. Um, so can you kind of go like, let's transition away from the modes of action into, like you mentioned, BT has to be applied and things have to eat it to, to get affected because it's a mid gut hole puncher. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like I can understand why, you know, Jonathan knows all of these things with the research and the people that you need to communicate with me because I'm mostly dealing with homeowners. They don't really care. If I start talking about acetylcholine and stuff, they'll just be like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, is that going to kill my dog? Is that harmful <laughs> to me? And that's all they need to know. I just so, want to be clear. I, I do not talk to homeowners and say like, oh, let's talk about acetylcholine esterase. Like I'm not that big of a nerd. This is just stuff that I enjoy learning about. But I've seen you talk to master gardeners about it. And it's great. Like you have a really good way of explaining it to people. So they would understand. Like, I think I remember you being, being in a room with you talking to master gardeners about synapses and you like them trucking like beach balls at each other. Yes. Yes. You yeah. should ex explain that. And cause like for me, like a, a visual learner, like, okay, I, I understand like, this is what's happening and this is how things get out of control. <laughs> and that's what's happening in an insect's body. And if we don't have certain receptors in our body as humans or mammals, then it's going to be a lot safer for non-targets, right? right? So, and that's why I think when it comes to BT, we do a lot of, I guess, promoting of something that's going to be less harmful to non-targets because here, people want to protect their gardens, but they also want to protect the pollinators. And right. so when it comes to something very targeted, BT is one of those products. 
um, what Mike was saying and about formulations, I think it's when people are bring me a container and they're like, this is what I've used on this bug. Here's where I used it. I'm like, yeah, that's not going to work because this is a, like, it needs to be eaten for it to work. It needs to be, you know, this is a contact spray. So you need to actually spray it on that insect. So, you know, if you have something that has no residual, so it's not going to leave any product there to be walked over and it's just a contact formulation or that's how it's going to work, then it doesn't matter how much they put there and it doesn't matter where they put it if they're not going to contact the target pest, right? So for me, it's a lot of what's going to be the most effective in minimizing the damage to your plant. So it really has to do with timing and like placement. So it's those, I guess, really thinking about what product you're using and how it actually uh, works physically, I think, where it is, you know, not like maybe in the insect body. No, I absolutely vibe with what you're saying. Like when we talk about formulations with people or, or how to get the product out, it, that's very important. Like I know it seems academic when you try to tell somebody, well, no, you, actually you can't spray a liquid for that pest because it's behavior, it's biology. It's just never going to interact with what you're putting out or if you're fogging for it, like it's just not going to be effective. Uh, we have contact products where if they touch it, they absorb it, they die. We have others that they eat and then they die. Uh, and within each of those categories, you can get a lot of a variability as well. For example, eating, you can do a BT, you could do a systemic product, which is a non-biorational perhaps, or a, a, a different kind of product. Like there's all these different ways that we can actually get the insecticide where it needs to be. So it, it, it kills the most bad bugs and it's contained away from things that you don't want to harm. That's what these formulations really are all about. Systemic in particular, a, a liquid systemic insecticide that you apply to the soil or that you apply to leaves or bark. So it's translaminar or, or whatever. It crosses those barriers and gets into the plant and is spread around that way. That means it's concentrated in the thing that you want to protect. And it's not just out in the environment. If you had just gone out and sprayed a contact product all over that tree, anything that touches that tree is going to die. Any insect that touches that tree is going to die. So that's why we, we hit on those formulations. And yeah, I think that's, it's more important than talking about the acetylcholinesterase stuff, but uh, it's all sort of background information to understand how these formulations work. Right. So when things have to be like a, a stomach poisoner or, or they have to be consumed, there is something going on inside the insect body, but you need to get it into their body. So how do you do that? Right. So even when we talk about um, toxic baits, there's going to be a variety of active ingredients in those baits. But I guess in terms of those inner ingredients, it's got to be something that that particular target insect is going to want to eat that tastes good, that's palatable, and that can carry on. Like sometimes in social insects, it's got to be slow acting so it can, you know, go through the colony. Right. And that's why with ants, yeah, I was going to say ants from your right. world. Everyone's like, yeah. everyone's like, I put out ant bait. Why are they still alive? I'm like, what have you been doing when you see the ants? They're like smashing them. I'm like, well, then you're not really using that insecticide the way it's intended, right? So it's like you're feeding them and they're taking it back to the others. 
if you're smashing those ants, then you're just feeding them and killing them. That's just why <laughs> you just stand there and kill them all. So it's like, oh, okay. Like if you want to kill more, then you find the nest and you treat with a contact insecticide. And then it's like, and oh. The inert ingredients are also really important in baits with ants because some ants, they're looking for sugar at different times of the year, right? Is there yeah. some differences there? Like what? what oh, absolutely. I mean, everybody wants to feed sugar baits to carpenter ants and they'll eat the, the sugar. I mean, we'll eat the sugar too, but they also have other nutrients uh, requirements. So they need protein. So you will get them to eat it, but you won't necessarily knock out the colony. So, you know, certain times of year, even with uh, yellow jackets, right? They're going to prefer meat, sometimes the sugar. So you're not going to need to think about that. And that's, you know, that's why there's entomologists. Right. That's why we know what those inactive ingredients are. Right. So I guess for me with ant baits, I tell clients that too. And I always tell them like, before you give up on ant baits, try two or three different brands and products because you don't know like what the ants are going to be interested in necessarily if it's proteins or sugars or whatever. Mm -hmm. Do they list on ant bait stations? Like this is a protein bait. This is a, a sugar bait. Like, do you just have to know that? Or is there somewhere because I've never been able to find it like I'll send you my list. Okay. Well, I read a lot of labels, but a lot of times they're going to be like liquid sugar bait. If there's one that says dual action, usually that one's got a little bit of protein. And I've talked to some of the people at, you know, the department of ag and it's, if, unless it says like, it is illegal to mix this bait with something else. Sometimes you would be able to mix it with a little bit of peanut butter for an oil, because there are grease feeding ants, or you can mix it with a little bit of like apple jelly or something like that to make it uh, more attractive to those, you know, pass. I wouldn't necessarily like sit around and formulate your own things in your lab, <laughs> but if you've got a bait and it's primarily sugar and you know that let's say the ants in your house are eating them, you can put a little bit of oil to, to, to see if they'll take, take that or make it I guess, go through the colony faster. But so the label will say what ants it is for. Usually it'll say for household ants and household ants do not include carpenter ants. I think pharaoh ants and red imported fire ants. So it will say on there what it excludes. And you just have to remind people that household ants are not, you know, carpenter ants. I don't know. I think I just heard you say take taro and put a bunch of Slim Jims in a in a Nutribullet and then blend it all together and put it out as a meat paste to kill my ants. Well, there is no meat formulation for baits, <laughs> but I wrote to somebody um, either in um, someone in Nebraska about formulations and things like that, and they like, is it illegal? And they said it's not unless on the label it says like not to be combined with other things. No you know? post-production mixing. Yeah. Okay. So this get kind us of, back on track, Mike. No, this is great. <laughs> but I do want to get back to this idea of biorational versus not biorational. What does that mean? And how does that relate to another term that maybe we should define IPM? And how does all of that relate back to things like mode of action? So what's bio, let's start with biorational versus not biorational first. Uh, biorational to me also kind of falls in with, I guess, like reduced risk. It's this idea of, of types of pesticides that inherently pose less hazard 
to humans, wildlife, non-target insects. They pose less of a hazard to groundwater, uh, and they are still successful as pest control items, as, as insecticides. Am I on the right track, Jody? Yes. Yeah. Because that's different than organic. It's, di- it's different than organic and natural. it's different than synthetic, like a bio-rational or, or a reduced risk pesticide can be synthetic. It doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily inherently have to be organic. It's all verbiage that kind of rings down through the ages because, you know, we've talked about the history of pesticides on this show. You start with the organochlorines and the organophosphates. Um, these were long lasting, highly toxic products like DDT. And then we made this huge swing in the other direction. They had to be highly toxic. You want to kill everything that we want to kill, but it can't last very long. It's got to burn up quick in the sun or in water. Uh, so you got to get away from, from having it last for a hundred years. Uh, that's where you start to see things like the carbamates come in. And then it's like, well, actually that's not great either because we're making like a dozen applications a year for the same pest with the same type of insecticide. we got to do something different. And so in the 90s, you see reduced risk pop up. There's legislation, I think, uh, in the Clinton administration era that starts to put forth, okay, like products that are registered with the EPA as insecticides, uh, as pesticides, actually, that's when they there's this list that we talk about. The reduced risk to human health, reduced risk to fish, birds, and beneficial insects, low risk for ground and surface water pollution, a low use rate so that the amount of active ingredient you put out in a given application is lower than in the past. And we've hit those goals. You used to put out pounds of active ingredient per acre, whereas now you're talking about grams in some cases, uh, and then low pesticide resistance potential. It's this push to, to make them less hazardous to the world, basically. I feel like you're coming for my Paris green. <laughs> yes. I want your Paris green, boy. So well, bio-rational is just more of this concept then of like it kills the targeted insects more, but hurts other things less. If, if we were to like summarize it, maybe. Right. And I think when it comes to IPM or integrated pest management, which is like my whole life, it's it's really, you know, we're not against pesticide. It's just, you know, insecticides can be part of an integrated pest management program. It's just one of those things where you have to really think judicially and is is this the right product to use in the right place? Is this the right timing? And is this going to be the lowest toxicity to the non-targets. So yeah, that's that reduced risk part. The biorational right. part, the, that's where you can start talking about like botanicals, microbials, and minerals, where they are they're they're biological. Yeah, well, like let's they're, talk about those ones, right? Like so botanicals, that's like made out of plants. Right. It's right? A, it's an oil usually that's that's uh squeezed from a neem seed or garlic even capsaicin these things uh so they, that's usually an oil uh, that's maybe mixed together with canola or vegetable oil further so that it will actually stick to the plant when you apply it in like certain types or groups of insects that feed a specific way with a mouth part or whatever they're going to be more susceptible to different like bioirrational products right like right so it's not like, oh, this is like, oh, which also leads back to understanding 
in identifying what your pest is, right? right? Like you see something eating something and you're like, I, I'm going to spray with this. Like when it comes to birationals, you have to figure out what's feeding there, what your pest is, what that is plant wise or whatnot, and then make those decisions. Yes. If you don't know what you're treating, you don't know what botanical to get. You don't know what synthetic to get it, no matter what you're doing. To complete the loop on Mike's kind of biorational thing, there are microbial products that's BT technically would fall into that category, as would spinosad. Um, you could even go, those are bacteria, but then we have fungi that can fall into that category, like Bavaria bassiana. Uh, those are all biorational. And then minerals, uh, that's a different group. You would be talking about something like Cowlin clay, I would say, which is a mineral-based product that you would apply like to apples and it cuts down on feeding. So it's technically an insecticide. You can have synthetic biorationals. The most famous group would be the insect growth regulators. They're biorational because they it feels so squishy to just be like they're it's very specific. It's only going to impact these insects that we want to target. So reduced risk and biorational, there is some separation there, but biorationals are reduced risk, if that makes sense. So I don't want to sound like we're just completely using circular logic here, but like it is all kind of connected. Right. And insect growth regulators that targets the growth of insects, which right. are completely different when it comes to metamorphosis right. and structure than humans and other, yeah. you know, mammals and, and whatnot. So it really just messes up their growth and development in that a lot. They do that with, you know, cockroaches and, and termites a lot, add in an IGR and some of their cockroach treatments and it pretty much like messes up that insect like it has twisted wings it may not be able to reproduce and it's not going to affect anything else other than cockroaches well said do you feel illuminated about insecticides mike i do so i think then the last question i have unless you guys have other things you'd like to talk about is can you talk about how we kind of incorporate everything we've talked about here when we're talking to clients, like a client has aphids on a plant in their garden. How do we, like, we want to incorporate IPM in in this idea of reduced risk pesticides, um, but sometimes they don't work. So maybe we need to use a like a broader spectrum pesticide after that. Like, how would you lead a client through like controlling an insect pest like that in a stepwise way through like different insecticide classes to get the best efficacy? Ooh. Does that can does go, that question make sense? Yeah. Can I go first, Jody? Yes. So you you mentioned IPM in this, and I want to couch it in that because the reason that we push IPM or PAMS, whatever you want to call it nowadays, prevention, avoidance, uh, uh, monitoring, and suppression, rather than integrated pest management. I've never even we, heard PAMS. Oh, PAMS, PAMS is the new hotness, I think. Uh, so <laughs> maybe we could do a PAMS episode in the future. But when we talk about those things and we talk about these biorational or reduced risk products, and then you say, oh, well, I heard that they don't work as well because you got to get them when they're younger or whatever. Yeah, like that's inherently part of this argument that we need to be monitoring more and be more prepared. 
Otherwise, it is a spray and pray with a higher toxic, a higher level of toxicity product, a hazardous, more hazardous product potentially that you have to use to get the bigger bugs. So you, if you want to start using these biorational things, it has to be couched in IPM. You have to be prepared to monitor, to catch the populations at their lowest when they're just starting to ramp up. And then you wipe them out with a biorational or come close to wiping them out. And I never try to promise complete control. But like, if you want to use these things, you do have to put in a little more work beforehand, but it saves you money and headache in the long run. As for like picking an insecticide, I think Jody does a really great job with that when she talks to clients. So I kind of wanted to let her her discuss her process. So like, what are, what are your aphids on? You know, and how how many? What are you seeing? If they're seeing things like lace, like lacewing eggs or lady beetles and surface fly, like other things, or they send me a picture and there are aphid mummies, then I know there's predators there. And so we want to make sure that those natural enemies are conserved. So the first thing is usually like a blast of the hose. You know, you're going to spray those aphids off, they'll fall down. Oftentimes they're going to come back because that's what they do. If you leave a couple aphids on there, you know, they reproduce without mating. So they'll, they'll come back. But like what Jonathan said, like it's something that you have to continuously do. You're not using, I guess, like a, a chemical, but you are spraying this plant down, you know, every couple days. If that's not something that works for them, they can use an insecticidal soap. And this is very different than like taking your dish soap or your dishwasher soap and spraying things all over your plant. We don't recommend (laughs) those kind of things because that could be toxic to the plant and won't really help. When we talk about hand picking certain things, you, you wouldn't do that with aphids necessarily because they're so small but we say like dump them or drop them into a soapy water and that's different than taking soapy water and spraying it all over your plants so the insecticidal soap that's a contact insecticide but it's you know uh potassium salts of fatty acids so that is going to um, be sprayed directly onto those aphids to disrupt their cell membranes. And that's basically how, I guess, that mode of action works for them. But it's not going to be something that's going to affect some of those predators there. And that's something that they would want to repeat weekly or biweekly. So again, you're not using those, I guess, more toxic chemicals to other um, insects and organisms there, but it is going to take more than one application. It's not, you know, something that you just see and spray and that goes away. Um, after that, I mean, I would cut some of those. Today, I have to admit, I have phlox plant bug and spider mites and I was spraying them. And then today I was like, you know what? No plant, no problem. And I just chopped off the plant at the base. It'll grow <laughs> back. The yeah. yeah. I was like, it'll come back later and it'll come back without bugs. You know, sometimes timing has a lot to do with it. So, you know, maybe the phlox plant bugs will die in and few weeks and my flocks will come back and be okay. Won't be as hot maybe. And then I won't have as many spider mites, you know, maybe I'll do a better watering job. So I guess PAMS or IPM, like it really has to do with preventing those. So, you know, making those populations not as, as damaging. And a lot of times people worry about aphids, I guess, on milkweed because they think it's going to disrupt the, the monarchs. And if you've got enough milkweed for everybody, then it's not going to be such a big deal. 
are we getting at what you wanted to know, Mike? Yeah, I think so. Um, and I'll maybe maybe I'll finish with a loaded question: Is there ever a time or place for these broad spectrum insecticides like pyrethroids and neonicotinoids? Things that if you spray it on there and it kills everything it touches, like yeah. is there a time to use that in, so, in an IPM way? I actually I think that's a great question, and uh, it gets at sort of a misconception that people have of IPM, where IPM means that insecticides are inherently the last line of defense or that they should be as limited as possible. That's not necessarily what we mean with IPM. There are situations where an insecticide, that's that's the only option you have, uh, particularly with an invasive pest. Uh, you don't have a lot of alternatives, especially in the initial invasion. Think of emerald ash borer. Like we were looking for chemistry because there just there wasn't biological control available. There weren't all these other methods that we could use. So yeah, that's, that's your sort of last, that's your only recourse is to use an insecticidal compound. So it's not the case in every situation, but it is in many of them. And it may be the best for your situation. Um, If you're a a grower and you have to guarantee a certain level of income, uh, if you're a manager of a golf course and you are under pressure to produce a certain view of, of grass or certain, you know, uh, uh, I guess, like level of play on your golf course. Uh, otherwise you lose your job. Like there's different situations and there's different things that are going to result from that in terms of insecticidal use. So yes, ultimately, uh, sometimes insecticides are the best, but it's good to think through all of the things that Jody mentioned. It, it's a situational situation where, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, things could be different year to year. I guess that what we get caught up in culturally is a calendar-based approach. I go out every June and I put this down and I don't see these bugs. And you don't even know if you've had those bugs. You don't know if you had those bugs 10 years ago and they would have gone away anyway. Uh, it's why it's it's an annual thing. that You reassess these kinds of things and you take it case by case. And when it comes to neonicotinoids and honeybees or bees that are foraging, there are ways and places and timing that will minimize injury to non-targets. So like the time of day where you're treating, what you're treating, uh, make sure you're not treating any blooms, you know, morning, evening before. Um, So, I mean, it really has to do with exposure. So if the non-targets are going to be in that area, you don't want them to be exposed. This is why when there's little signs on people's yards that say, keep off the yard, you know, the lawn for this many hours, that is to reduce exposure to non-targets. And, you know, unfortunately bees and other birds and things like that won't be able to read that. So we need to make sure that we try our best to to minimize that exposure to to those non-targets. And uh, if we're sticking with kind of the neonic and honeybee thing, I would point out that you can talk about neonics and then you can talk about neonics. You can talk about them individually. Like if you have a pest problem, if you're dealing with aphids and neonics are your best option for a systemic control of aphid populations in your crop, you have choices. You can pick imidacloprid, clothianidin, thiamethoxam, or acetamiprid. Like these are the active ingredients that make up that class. And they're usually talked about very specifically in recommendations. And if you have the option to use any of them, if you're worried about pollinators, go with acetamiprid. It is inherently less toxic to the bees, uh, just based on its chemical structure within the greater neonicotinoids. 
And that gets it kind of like hazard and risk, which I know Jody talks about a lot with pesticide safety because people are a part of this as well. The, there is a risk to you being exposed to these products during application and then to people that may come through and, and use that area following. So there can be a risk, but if you can cut down on exposure, you can cut down on the hazard. Is that the right uh, formula for that, Jody? Um, the toxicity part. Yeah, yeah. To <laughs> like the risk is that it's inherently toxic. But if you're not exposed to it or the insect's not exposed to it, then you've cut out the hazard. You can also pick things that are inherently less risky or less toxic and lower the overall hazard as well. Right. And you so, always want to follow the label. And I think a lot of times, especially <laughs> with people with gardens, they want to know what they can apply on something they're going to eat. So a lot of times, like, are you going to eat this? Is this edible? Is this in a container? Because there are going to be systemics for container plants. And there is going to be like name if it's a plant they want to eat. Right. And so it, it really has, you really have to think about the whole situation and that, you know, that, that risk that you're talking about. And if I could say something kind of as like a, a capper, I guess it would be like, this is confusing, right? I, I was at the store looking for a very, I wanted bifenthrin and I wanted it in a liquid form so I could treat the base of my squash and zucchini plants to protect them from squash vine borer. And I know what I'm looking for. But I also know that trade names become very powerful, and that's what people seek out. There was no bifenthrin in a liquid form on the shelf. And so my wife was like, well, why are we leaving empty-handed? I was like, oh, they don't have what I need. And she's like, look, at this, this wall of insecticides. Like, how does it not hear what you want? And I was like, I don't know. They don't have it. And she's like, how do you know? And I went through some of what we've just talked about. And she's like, well, I can see why people just buy whatever they see in a commercial and they, they treat with like, that's extremely confusing what you just went through. And I was like, yeah, I totally get why it's very easy to just, your grandpa used seven, use seven. Like it, you know, it kills stuff. And it's, there are pictures of them on the label. Like I totally get all that. And getting into the weeds with all this, like we've done for the last hour is entertaining for us, but it can be very frustrating for a gardener or for somebody that just doesn't want spiders in their house. So right. I, I understand that frustration and, I hope that we've demystified some of it here today. I highly encourage people, contact your local extension office to read your extension publications from your state specifically, because there are differences in pesticidal, insecticidal availability state to state. I'm looking at you, New York and California. Uh, you know, they, their labeling is much more restrictive than a southern state like mine uh, in Kentucky. And if you just read anything from anywhere, you could get advice, but it may not be great advice. Uh, you'll see a lot of extension pubs that they cheat and they'll say, contact your local office for more information so they don't have to update it. I think I've said on the show before, I think they should have extension jail for a thousand years when they do that. But I hate it. Is it <laughs> is a person that does extension? I'm like, I, I, who, but who doesn't know pesticides? Right. Like I know extension publications are often really good sources of information. And then I'm like, I need to know what to tell this client. And I get to that. And I'm like, you did not tell me what I need to know. So you just said that there are insecticides. Like, yeah. Uh, so find those resources, trust your local county offices and, and reach out to them. They'll know who to contact or they know the answer automatically. So it's a murky world insecticides and it gets murkier all the time with company acquisitions 
and new types of chemistry. It's it's exciting. We may have the potential in the near future to have really great, more biorational products that do what we want without the harm to the environment. But getting from that point to, or from our point to that point, we're in the, the pivot of history and it, it pinches you and it's confusing. So find trusted sources of information, I guess, is what my rant boils down to. <laughs> Did we do it, Mike? Did we teach about insecticides? I think so. Uh, Jody, do you have any last thoughts before we wrap up? I don't think so. John, in that case, uh, do you want to do the outro? Because I don't have the script and I don't remember it. (laughs) We hope that you appreciated this deep dive into insecticides, not literally because we would all be twitchy and dead if we did that. But uh, if you have ideas for shows in the future, we would love to hear from you about what those are. You can contact any of us at our at our email addresses through our local institutions. You can also reach us through the blog. We're arthro-pod.blogspot.com. The show is active on Twitter and takes comments and suggestions there at arthro underscore pod show. I'm also on Twitter. I'm at Bugman John. I'm at Jody Bugs Me, UNL. I'm at mscavarla36. You can find our show on all of the podcatcher apps out there, arthro-pod.blogspot.com. Uh, wherever you're listening to us now is a great place to start. Uh, if you could leave us a rating and review, that helps people to find the show. And uh, we'll leave you today with an advertisement for another podcast that recently visited an arthropod festival. Um, and they went on a deep dive and, and learned all about arthropods there, I think at NC State. And so uh, we will leave you with an advertisement to go join them at their show. So thanks for listening. And we'll catch you in a couple of weeks on Arthropod. Hey everyone, my name is Jacob and I want to talk to you about my podcast, Viva La Festiva. On this podcast, I'm ready to take you on a journey around the world to explore the festivals that you probably haven't heard of. I want to find out everything about these events, the unique culture, sometimes wacky events, delicious food, and everything in between. So please join me as we delve into the heart and soul of each festival and hear from the amazing people who make them a reality. The wonderful thing about events and festivals in general, and Bugfest in particular, is that we really have different things for all ages and interests. When you look around and you see the smiling faces, or you see the people cracking it up at themselves trying to ice skate, or whatever it is, like I, it just tickles me. Just really get to meet the most uh, wonderful people. Whether Now you might be asking, what makes a festival a festival? Well. My metric will be an event that is celebrated annually and has some sort of cultural significance to a place where it's held. I personally think a festival is a great way to get a feel of a region, almost a snapshot of the local culture, and I'm really excited to learn about as many as possible. That's why in each episode, I'll strive to bring you all the stories that make each of these festivals memorable. From a small town event celebrating James Dean, to a mass gathering of artists that use their body as a canvas, I'll show you that almost every place in the world has something special that they want to celebrate. With that, I hope to see you join me. Be sure to follow the show on Viva La Festiva on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to not miss a single adventure. Adios. It's time for our insect heroes to put away their nets and pheromone traps. Join us next time. Same bug time, same bug channel as the Arthropod Gang Make the world safe from poor insect podcasts. Until then, keep on bugging.
alpha gal. She's the number one gal. <laughs>